welcome back everybody to Thoughts on the Social World, the Social World podcast. I'm Dave Niven and as usual it's a pleasure to have your company. Now over the years and there have been what 10 years of this now we've covered lots of aspects of safeguarding, lots of disciplines who are involved with safeguarding and getting their take on things and predictions about the future But we haven't really focused too much on those that have to stand and talk about it. The communications experts for all the different agencies. So whether it's police, social services, health, education, wherever um, that situations occur, there needs to be people that actually either prepare staff for or in their own right, talk about what's just happened and try and communicate to the public. And today I've got a very special guest. Miriam Rich. Miriam is uh, a communications expert, consultant, a media relations specialist. And for the last at least couple of decades, she's been involved in some of the most high profile cases in the UK in terms of response and in terms of communication advice and work to do with it. Welcome, Miriam. Welcome to the programme. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, well, look, I've I've talked about a little bit about where you're at, but let's take it back to the beginning. How did you first get involved in um, professional communications? Well, that's one I owe to my late father, actually, because I'd left university without a clear direction. I went to work for a charity for a few years, uh, which was great. But after four or five years, I started thinking, you know more strategically about what I might want to do for a career and I really wasn't sure and my dad said to me um, probably because I never stopped talking as a child I think you'd you'd be quite good in communication so maybe you have a think about PR Um, (laughs) and after that I um, that my parents supported me to do a diploma in the evenings I was obviously working at that time but I did a diploma in public relations uh, and that's sort of where it began. Okay. Well, now, the first, I mean, from what I, I, I've talked to you about and also remember from, from your biography, um, one of the first jobs you had was as a, sort of, I don't know, call them juniors? I don't know. But it, anyway, in the press office of Scotland Yard. Is, is that right? That's right. Yes, that was my, my first um, uh, job in communications. And I joined as an assistant press officer. Now, there's a mass uh, going on. This, this was the turn of the century, wasn't it? About 99, 2000, and there was a mass of issues going on there. Um, why don't you just tell us about a few of them, which people will probably remember? And for international listeners, maybe you just add a little bit for context. Mm, of course. Well, I, I think what really drew me to the Met Police, I'd, I'd always been um, interested in um in in sort of criminal justice issues and um the murder of teenager Stephen Lawrence um who was who was killed in a racist knife attack uh in in 1993 had um really um caused a huge deal of uh, re- reflection and introspection um, across the country huge shock and there was a public inquiry that many of your listeners may remember um, and that found the Metropolitan Police to be institutionally racist and made very many recommendations for the Met to adopt to improve the way it, um, it, it worked with diverse communities in London. 
Um, and as you say, I was based at, at New Scotland Yard, the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police. And I was very, very interested in understanding whether, you know, the Met really was racist and what that looked like on the inside. Um, so I felt very privileged to be able to sort of go there and 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 work on that. Um, and as you say, there were, you know, there were lots of things going on at that time. Ten days after I started at New Scotland Yard, um, the there was a, a big rail crash, uh, train crash, called which was uh, in Paddington, became known as the Paddington Rail Crash. Um, and I attended that, which was also a real, uh, a, a very steep learning curve at that time, just 10 days. Mm. In... 10 days, blimey. Right, yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. there, were, there were other things as well, but back to the, on the Stephen Lawrence issue, because that's just so representative to me of an enormous piece of work that was like trying to turn an oil tanker. And I suspect it absorbed the work of, of the Met communications or a lot of it for, for many years. It really did. And and that's an excellent analogy, because when you're thinking about an organisation of, you know, I think upwards around that time is sort of 45,000, 50,000 people when you're taking into account both police officers and police staff, civil servants and, and others, the, the, the servants in the uh, in the police, you, you're thinking about um, a, a huge shift in um, in culture, in practice, uh, in thinking. Uh, and so it was a very interesting time to be involved. And it's still being said, even though, I, I mean, we'll get to this later, but even though you left the, the Met in, in 2011, but it, today it's still kind of dragging on and, and people are still referring to it as really as unfinished business, aren't they? Yeah, it's very um, it, it's very difficult to see the situation that the Met is in now. And whilst I'm sure there have been you know, lots of improvements on on many fronts. Clearly, they are not there yet, um, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think that that job mm. has been made a lot more difficult by, you know, the emergence of the inter of the internet and social media in the interim. Um, yeah. Because obviously, yeah. when I was there, that was really all in its infancy. Well, you did work at the beginning for the first few years to do with some of the more high profile United Kingdom cases that that we all in this country remember, such as the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, the London nail bomber, the disappearance of Madeleine McCann and other child sexual abuse cases. And your portfolio that you had to deal with included counter-terrorism, racial crime, violent crime. And you kind of were involved in so many different things with so many different people at, at, at the Met that in 2006, if I remember my reading correctly, you were invited to become a founding member of the, and head of media, I think, uh, of the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre in the Metropolitan Police, which was created to, in response to um, the explosion of child sexual abuse on the internet. That was a big well, change. It, it was a big change. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that all of the cases and, and issues that you've listed, I was very much, you know, they, they, you can imagine there were very many people that I was really lucky to learn from. Um, they involved huge effort, largely unseen by, you know, the, the public and rightly so. But the responses to those kinds of incidents and operations involved a huge number of people. And I was learning all the way from some really excellent people. But yes, I left the Met actually in um, in uh, 2003-04. I went to work for the National 
um, what, what is now the National Crime Agency was then the National Criminal Intelligence Service. And in 2006, um, the Child Exploitation Online Protection Centre was set up um, with the former head of counterterrorism in Northern Ireland in uh, at the what was the Royal Ulster Constabulary at the helm. And the, the idea was to bring the principles of um, counterterrorism to trying to combat the emerging threat uh, to children from social media uh, and the explosion in social media at, at that time. It's a massive area of work still, um, and I, I hate to say it, but almost growing because the the more that I understand that both law enforcement and those working with victims and survivors learn about the um, hor horrors that are going on all worldwide, um, the more that has to be done to try and counter it. It's like a continuing leapfrog as far as I can understand. Yes, it is. And I think one of the things that have that has improved um, since those days and which I think has, you know, I, I'd like to think is here to stay is the coordination and the cooperation on those kinds of cases, the multi-agency approaches that that were quite unusual at the time that SEOP was created. And, um, and, you know, I think one of the most unusual things, it was sort of quite a groundbreaking model at the time is that we were working, you know, it was it was a the building was uh, encompassed um, police uh, experts in childcare, social workers like Dr. Kate Richardson, who's now head of safeguarding at the National Crime Agency, and colleagues of hers that had come across from the NSPCC at that time, um, uh, experts in education, um, and 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 really uh, very diverse range of specialisms, all working across desks. To, co to try and combat this 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 new threat. Well, I do think, I mean, multi-agency working has, in fact, as you say, kind of established itself as, as the best way forward um, since mm. then. But it's not taking away from the nature of the scale of the work still, is it? No, it's absolutely enormous. And it was even, it, it's turned out to be as enormous as, as it appeared to be back in 2006. You know, even you mm. know, people, your listeners might remember that the sort of, um, nascent social media platforms like Bebo and MySpace, which um, were already sort of being, well, I'd like to, uh, really infiltrated by infiltrated, yeah, yeah. Those with a sexual in interest in children and 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 children being targeted um, for grooming and abuse on, on those and other sites, and and then obviously Facebook kind of coming along and. I think once um, it became very clear through the report abuse button that that CEOP put on those sites and working, you know, in collaboration with some of those platforms to make it easier for children to um, to report. In fact, what uh, you know, what was known in the building um, as as target hardening, I've mentioned sort of Jim's counterterrorist background, and that's how they saw it was you actually need to empower children to know what's what's safe, what's unsafe and how to report. Um, and and that was the um, that was the game plan. No, I mean it's um, on the optimistic side, right? Okay, on the optimistic side, it can certainly be argued that even though the volume of work today is certainly as much as, if not more, than it used to be, because the more we learn, the more we understand, the more we have to combat um, abuse. But at the same time, people are coming forward more now because it could be argued that there's a greater trust in the authorities 
to deal with them sensitively and to believe them. Whereas even 20 years ago, there was still that kind of, if you like, that slight dark cloud that a lot of people wouldn't come forward because they think they, were, they weren't going to be believed, nothing was going to happen, and the whole thing would just completely and utterly put a full stop to ruining their lives. And that, that has begun to change. I, I have seen that myself. But on the other hand, you can argue there's so much now coming out of the woodwork, to put an analogy on it, that um, it, it's exhausting and and it's going to carry on for decades and decades. We're never going to we're never going to combat child abuse completely, are we? I think it's very difficult. I'd love to say we 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 could, but I think you're right. I think it's you know the scale of the problem makes that very difficult. But you you kind of touched on that on something that was at the core of our communication strategy at SEALP at that point, which was that we everything was guided by a need to reduce the confidence of perpetrators to think that they could offend and target and groom children, um, you know, free from consequence, mm. whilst also at the same time increasing the confidence of children and young people to report and adults to report, parents, you know, who, who came, came across the fact that they're their child or young person for whom they might have had responsibility was being groomed and targeted online and and all the people that sort of work with children teachers and and so on and see did a huge amount of work in schools to try and increase that but it was very much about increasing the confidence of of potential victims and and those who supported them and reducing the confidence of perpetrators that they would get away with it but I mean, I, I, I get your point and I agree with you, but the landscape has broadened so hugely in terms of what we have to cope with. Um, I mean, for example, 20 odd years ago, it was a matter of combating individuals who took opportunities to follow their particular instincts, which was to, to actually hurt a child or to get involved with a child. But now a, a huge player, of course, is organised crime worldwide. Mm. Because human trafficking or sexual exploitation of children is big money. And um, they're now major players. So that's involved all sorts of other strata of law enforcement. And it's kind of ramped it up hugely, wouldn't you say so? I completely agree. That I'd say the landscape has got really very complicated. I think those things were, were perhaps still there. But, you know, there was very, you know, there was a trafficking problem. Children were being trafficked and exploited. Um well, you know, for a long time prior to the internet, but the sort of um, advent of the internet and the the kind of revolution in, in digital communications has certainly made the job for the police, for social workers, for everyone involved in trying to combat those crimes much more difficult, much more complex, whilst also, you know, obviously it's a double-edged sword that those tactics can also be used against offenders and uh, against organised crime. Okay. Well, let's deal with one of the, I don't know, what can we call them, little elephants in the room? Um, a lot of people say, on one hand, that um, agencies and organisations who are have the responsibility and the statutory duty to protect children, when things go wrong, what they all do is they just want to cover up. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, people would say, no, good comes uh, good communications people and good organisations don't try and cover up. What they try and do is, as much as they're able to do within the realms of confidentiality, 
and protecting the in, the kind of identities of children within that realm they are they try and be as transparent as possible in order not just on that case but in order to show the public that uh the complexities of of, of their work is that balance is, is that kind of um conviction quite in agreement with what you and your ex-colleagues felt I definitely think that that's the case that you know I think when an organization hits the rocks or the reputation is threat you know is, is threatened um around a safeguarding issue the temptation can be to run and hide under the metaphorical duvet and to you know pull the shutters down and just say you know mm. when journalists are interested um or you know stakeholders other sort of stakeholders get involved um whether that's the statutory authorities or local community or whoever the temptation is just to say as little as possible um but my view on that would be that actually there's so much more to be gained um and it's so much obviously ethically and morally the right thing to do to be able to share the information that you can share um you know without jeopardizing the integrity of 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 the people in, in concerned and 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 you know personal details private details and so on but to certainly um you know explain and be transparent and open about what went wrong um what you're doing to fix it and how you know what what help you might need and and how the situation can be um no, 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 right. with... exactly how it can be put right Absolutely. And of course, you're, you're, you're working in a situation there where the default position is to blame somebody and hang them out to dry. Um, give them a, give them a, a victim, give them somebody that actually, uh, caused the problem by not doing their job correctly. Um, and that's always, that's always going to be the case, I think, within sort of human nature. But, but listen, going back a little bit there, you, you mentioned a word, reputation yeah. and that's where in my view an awful lot of people have got doubts and need to hear from people like yourselves who've been professionally involved and if you like on on the good side for quite some time because a comes a comms um plan or a media plan within any agency also usually has the tag reputation management Mm. And therefore, people imagine that you're going to go out there to do anything you can to preserve the reputation of that organization. Was that that pressure always was that put on you a lot or or did you manage to sort of push back? Um, it wasn't put on me a lot, but I absolutely agree that reputation management has a very dirty ring to it and it can too. And I think it's about how it's applied and how you know, what your objective is. I mean, I think if you're looking at an organisation that's made an honest mistake, I mean, obviously we're talking sort of hypothetically here, but if if something's gone wrong um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 there's the um, competence and ability of that organisation has been called into question and people's confidence in that organisation are shaken, then the consequences can be that whether that's a local authority safeguarding team or 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 a, or a faith group uh, organization or whatever it is um the confidence uh, people's confidence in that in that organization can be really called in, into question people's you know if things get really bad people's uh, uh you know jobs can be at risk and and so on and so forth so it's not really about um trying to save a reputation for reputation's sake it's it's about trying to preserve the the good things about that organization and to acknowledge 
mistakes and to try and learn and grow and to be really open and transparent in the way that things are explained. Um, I, I think that, you know, if you're, there are people who do the kind of communications that are a bit more dark arts and a bit more sort of, um, you know, a bit more surreptitious, mm. uh, especially involving you know the internet and that can be done on social media and so on but I never that's not something that attracts me or um or that I would want to get involved in I see communications much more as a tool to share the positive work that's been done that's being done around safeguarding and the sort of improvements that organizations want uh, might be making that they want to share to increase trust and confidence in them now, for the last 10 years-ish, 11 maybe, I don't know, you, you, you've worked in the private sector forming your own company, and you've been involved in um, helping public and private sector clients, um, schools, universities, law enforcement, charities, um, training and guidance in how to deal with the media, because I suspect everybody has to understand now that 99% of most people's opinion and, and information comes from some form of media or other, whether it's written media, broadcast media, whether it's social media, wherever. But that's where people get their ideas from. And if you're not in that shop window arguing your case, you're very, very vulnerable with the first glitch that comes up. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, I think so. I think, you know, the more the general public understand your area of work before a crisis happens. So, for example, you know, to use the, you know, the parallel of policing, the more that the the public understands the challenges faced by the police at an individual level, the more they understand the complexities of the work and that sometimes things aren't always as they seem they're a bit more nuanced and I think the more they understand the people who go into that work the police officers and then applying that across to social workers as well you know the vast vast majority of people who go into those frontline ro roles in social work and, and and very many other you know they they go in it they go into it for all the right reasons because they want to do good because they want to improve things because they want to make a contribution in their own way and they find it um, you know, very that brings them satisfaction, and I think those are the things that can often be forgotten in the sort of in the eye of a storm. Well, fairly well said, I think. Yes. Well, look, let's talk about you in the um, in the private sector for the moment, and remind people that on the front page of this podcast, um, I'll be putting all your details down about how to contact you, reminding people what you've done before they listen to the podcast, perhaps but also how to get in touch with you and the sort of things that you might be available for and the things that you'd like to draw people's attention to. So all of that, just to tell people listening, will be on the front page here. So maps is a final few minutes, uh, Miriam. Where is the world going in terms of actual being able to stand up and talk to this kind of behemoth that is the media? Uh, in a way that um, they don't have to be frightened about, they don't have to, they, they, they'll have some understanding and that they can show the transparency and truth because telling the truth is the absolute underlying principle of anybody talking to the media. So how, how do we actually continue to go about um, improving the way that those working with vulnerable children um, get their message out? 
Well, it's a big question. Um, I think that you, as you, the starting point, as you've said, is to is to always tell the truth. I think the second point is to feel confident that um, you have a, a positive story to tell. That actually, you know, the vast majority, if as a social worker, as a social work team. Uh, you know, in whatever environment you're working in, you have a positive story to tell, you have a story of interest to media, and therefore, you don't need to be afraid of media. Yes, there are, you know, there are journalists and occasions where that can feel that sort of interest can feel very threatening. But the vast majority of journalists that I've worked with are simply representing their audience. So their listeners, their readers, and they're representing the interests of of of, of that particular branch of the general public or sector um who who uh you know is is interested in that outlet and to that end most um most media interest can be a really positive thing um it gives you the chance if you're if you're sort of proactive and you ha- you're open to sharing your successes and to perhaps letting um media in a little bit to see what you're doing you know, there there can be risks attached, and that needs to be carefully managed with you know press office. If you work in in an organisation with a press office, or or just really thought through um, prior to that. But those that work it can be done, and it can go a long way to sort of increasing public awareness and understanding of what you're doing. Okay. Well, look, I mean, perhaps getting into the final couple of minutes here, but. All, all my working life, I've argued against, um, especially local authorities, I've got to be honest, who seem to confuse confidentiality with secrecy. And so there's very limited opportunities for those in safeguarding and social work and child protection, whatever, to be able to talk about successes. And that, to my view, is how you balance things. We've all seen the drama of some of the high-profile cases that come where, unfortunately, a child has been seriously injured or died or whatever, and and that's always hitting the headlines. But never do we hear the 99% of others that are being protected, are, are being interrupted, uh, and, and so forth, actually um, hitting the headlines. I mean, because I'm sure you would be aware of the fact that Nobody here has ever seen a headline that said social worker does good job. <laughs> yeah. So I think effectively it's a matter of um, the comms professionals, of which you are a very good example, um, kind of constantly, constantly working to actually help balance, help the world uh, of information to do with child abuse be more balanced and so that people can have a much better idea of what's going on around them and learn and have their awareness raised at the same time. So as a sort of final message to, well, you're now a very experienced person in this world. So people, let's say the Miriam that started out in the mid nineties or whenever it was, you know, what would you say to that Miriam today? Oh, um... (laughs) I knew I'd give you a difficult one. What would I say? I think that um, the structures in that are in place. You talked about the the difference between confidentiality and secrecy. Mm. I think structures that are in place that you know you, for example, the local authorities, as you said, which I suppose are at the you know the front line of perhaps opportunity to raise awareness of 
of the the 99.9% of success stories that you refer to they don't always lend themselves very well <clears throat> to 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 doing that work because they're firefighting you know they're firefighting every day the press office there on all the sort of the other things that are going might be going wrong in the local authority or other priorities so i think it could there probably are challenges around having the time and resource to make those cases um and then of course if something does go wrong the the things that kick in you know the reviews and and so forth sometimes obviously criminal justice process that kicks in um precludes the the kind of communications that could help people to understand the situation better and in a way by then it's it's too late but the miriam what would the miriam then would well what was a a miriam there at that time who was wanting to go into pr who was wanting to go into media relations what sort of message would you say to them that's really what i was trying to get at would you be encouraging i would be i consider myself so privileged and so grateful with the day that that was suggested to me by my dad because I have really loved every minute of it and I think the reason why is because I continue to learn I learned from all the amazing colleagues that I worked with um, at CEOP and beyond and and that you know gave me the opportunity to combine those two really strong areas of interest for me the this the media relations and and public relations communication side with child protection and safeguarding um i feel very privileged to continue to work in that area and i really love learning from everyone that i come across so i would say absolutely grab it with both hands and go for it okay well miriam uh i think your dad would be very proud um um uh, and i wish more people in the comms world had the degree of understanding and sensitivity that you have demonstrated. So, Miriam Rich, thank you ever so much for being my guest today on the Social World Podcast, and I wish you all the best in the future. Well, that's very kind. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.